to be a wankerer. Who can take a sunrise, sprinkle it with dew, cover it in chocolate and a miracle or two? It's a candy man. The candy man can. Candy man can. Passy mixes it with love and makes the Welcome world back, serial killers, to another deep dive into the files of Saturday Morning Confidential. Now, today's episode is going to be a little unusual. A lot of our favorite sitcoms and shows have had what we called backdoor pilot, whether it was the Jeffersons or Frasier, any number of shows. Sometimes a show needs to spiral out of another one. So sticking to our theme of nostalgia and projects that mean something important to the artist of today, I present our very own backdoor pilot for a show I've been working on over the last year. We've recorded a few episodes, and I just wanted to put one out there now for you to enjoy and get the buzz going for when we release the series later this year. It's called Song and Dance, Musicals of the Silver Screen. Now, Song and Dance is going to focus on movie musicals that were created for the screen and not adapted from a Broadway musical. Now, I know you're probably rolling your eyes and groaning because it means we can't talk about your favorite movie musical. Now, chill out, because every fifth episode, we will be talking about adaptations of existing musicals to talk about how they differ from projects that were written for the screen. Now, our first few episodes include Repo the Genetic Opera, Across the Universe, Greatest Showman, and Into the Woods. I know. I know what great titles. But today, I wanted to treat you to one of my favorite people talking about one of their favorite musicals. So I present the pilot of Song and Dance, Musicals of the Silver Screen, as I sit down and discuss the 70s pinnacle musical, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, with Bryn Williams. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Song and Dance, Musicals of the Silver Screen. Welcome back to Song and Dance, Musicals of the Silver Screen. This is our very first episode. Thank you for joining in. Musical films have always been something that have existed and have been wonderful since the literal beginning of film as an industry, as an art form, and... So it's really interesting to talk about the differences between those and like a stage musical and how they cross and how they are different. And so for our very first episode, I wanted to do something really fun and nostalgic and have a wonderful guest. And I have one of the best guests with me today. I have Bryn Williams. Bryn, welcome to the show. Thank you for being on with me. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. Um, Well, and this is great because you and I were texting back and forth what to do and you have some first hand experience other than just being a fan of this property. So I'm excited for us to chat about that um, in a little bit, but fill the audience in about who you are and kind of your background with musical film and musical theater. Definitely. So my name is Bryn Williams and oh, I always hate saying this because it sounds so pretentious, but I am a Broadway performer. <laughs> I am a performer of the Broadway. Um, <laughs> And uh, one of one of the shows that I did was I was in the first national tour of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory playing Violet Beauregard. So I got to chew all the gum and put my dentist's children through college. (laughs) So (laughs) it was it was such a great experience. And beyond that. 
Um, and I know that we've talked about this before, mm-hmm. but I wasn't allowed to listen to the radio growing up. So all of my music experience came from all of these movie musicals. So Disney, Muppets, um, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, they are all they were all part of my music education. And so when this is this really hits home as far as strong nostalgia for me. Great. I love that. And I for me too, this is one of the earliest films I remember us having in my home growing up and um my dad singing it and we had, I believe, the record of this. We had a, a tape or something of this. And so, like, I even knew the songs like Pure Imagination and Candyman before I think I saw this for the first time. And oh, so, wow. so, so this is a really fun one. And so I'm hoping the audience will go on board with us. And so, but the whole point of the show is I want us to take kind of a dramaturgical look and kind of uh, the idea of, like, what makes a musical... Um, and kind of have this conversation. And so um, you are a well-versed musical theater performer, and so, um, but you're also kind of a pop culture aficionado as well. And so it'll be interesting. What I want us to start with is like, let's look at the structure of a musical film versus a, a stage musical. And there are just some very different, uh, very different things. Um, uh, just as an example, we all know that like in a musical, there are songs because a character can't, uh, sing, they can't say what they need to say anymore, so they sing it. And then when they can't sing it anymore, they dance it. And so there's this beautiful, we've had this evolution of musical theater of how do we fully integrate song and dance of storytelling. And sometimes with musical film, that's not always how it is structured. Sometimes the music is just kind of there. It exists. And what's interesting is I think this movie is a a particularly good study of that because some of the songs do come out of those moments. We have, uh, you know, um, Cheer Up Charlie and Candyman that kind of come intrinsically out of these fun scenic moments. And then you've got, you know, you've got some of the things like the Oompa Loompa songs or, you know, that they're there, interestingly. And so I find... In some musical films, because also, I don't know about you, but a lot of times musical film is created and feels a little fluffier. Like they are, like I immediately think of like the Grease 2's, um, uh, music makes the world, oh, what is it, uh, we are the music, which is the 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 village people, or like Xanadu. These yeah, things that are like these really are... fun properties, but they're a little fluffier. They're fun. Like you want to go see a fun musical. Um, and so, uh, yeah. So for you, what are some things that you think just kind of stand out that make a good musical movie? When you're sitting down to watch a musical movie, what are some things that you are looking for as a viewer, but also as like a theater artist? Well, the the interesting thing about theater and about movie musicals is that there is no one way to do it. And so mm-hmm. wh- I, I always say that there's something for everyone. And so when I watch um, when when I watch a, a movie musical or a live stage production, I try to keep as open a mind as possible so really when a song starts I'm just looking for how it services the story and it doesn't have to service the story in terms of um, forwarding the plot because I think that this movie in particular does a fantastic job of showcasing all 
different ways that you can put a song into a story because there mm-hmm. is Candyman, which sets things up and, and very much um, leads into emotion. Same thing with I want it now that comes from mm-hmm. her pure fury. And then, but then you have songs like um, pure imagination, which really, it doesn't, forward the plot it captures a moment in time Mm -hmm. which is another style of and then you have the oompa loompa songs which they completely break the fourth wall and they're talking directly to the audience where when you watch Mm -hmm. it it's not um very rarely are there ever any other characters from the movie on the screen when right, the Oompa Loompas right. are singing their Oompa Loompa song. So you know that the Oompa Loompas are speaking directly to the audience. So um, so that's a long-winded way of saying when I, when I watch movie musicals, what I'm looking for is execution from the the person who is singing it they don't have to be the best singer but they just have to be a hundred percent in it i hate when i watch Mm -hmm. musicals and the performer is not excited about it or not not giving it a hundred percent like you can see that they think it's ridiculous and that that bothers me Well, and that's a consensus that we have to make with musical theater. And, like, I get that there are people out there who are not musical fans. Sometimes I think musicals are so ridiculous, and I just can't. Sometimes you're putting music in a world that I don't feel intrinsically matches. Um, And so, you know, it's one of those things where there is an absurdity to it. But I, you know, it's, you know, it's, I find this on Broadway now, too, or in a national tour or something, when I go to see it and they put a star in it or someone who doesn't traditionally do musical theater, if I feel like they're on stage presenting as if they are just beyond what they're doing, beyond this art form, I complete, I don't want to submerge in this world because we are going in with this consensus that we live in a world where people burst into song and that's just (laughs) something we have to That is a consensus, and honestly, I think it's a fun thing where we just kind of breathe and let it go, because wouldn't it be better sometimes when you're so frustrated if you could just scream and then have your Zac Efron High School Musical 2 moment where you get to, like, sing on a hill, and then everything's better, and you can breathe out, because I think we all internalize things so much. (laughs) I just want the the performance, so in, like, um, in, in acting class or or any improv group there's this game called yes and where someone says something and at the end of it you have to say yes and 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 then add on to whatever it is that they're saying and so there's sometimes when I'm just watching performers and I'm like sweetie yes and just that means don't question it just take it and run with it accept it and and that's how I that's how I feel with music about musicals I I don't like it when people just kind of roll their eyes and say oh it's a musical it's like yes and you know what you knew what this was going into it girl you knew you knew what it was now I will say for musical film I do have an expectation of scale um (laughs) and because there is a reason when you're developing a musical that like you choose to either make it for stage or make it for screen. And there are there is an expectation of the scale and the kind of story you're telling, but also the people that you're kind of appealing to mm-hmm. when you're making this. And I do want the scale and story to match. I want it to be so much larger than life because in a movie, you can do a computer-generated set. You can do almost anything where in theater... 
our technicians and our designers work literal magic in a black box. It's it is the it is the truest form of magic in our world. But like, you know, we are still limited to the space that we're in many of the times. Um, and so th something like this, especially when you are talking about a chocolate factory that defies space and time, like mm -hmm. it is, uh, it is so unusual that I think this is one of those stories that I just think appeals to the sensibility of seeing on film. Also, the thing about film versus having a production that is live, everyone experiences it together once and no performance is like any other performance. And you and I both know there is something so magical about that and so wonderful. Um, there's a reason that like scientists have proven that like heartbeats and breath rates sync up when you're in a theater together watching a live show. Um, but there is something wonderful also about having a property like Willy Wonka that you can revisit anytime you want on home video. Like there is, you know, it's why people listen to cast recordings. And so for me, I think I, I always want to see the scale. I want to understand the world. And I think they did a nice job in setting the tone for that world and kind of putting us in a structure where we very early on, we get Candyman very quickly. Cause a lot of times in musical film, there won't be an opening number. Like we have in musical theater, there's not an overture. Um, we don't get that first number. And in this Candyman is that first number. And so, you know, we get the kids running out. And so it, it sets that tone, um, in a way that it is, it is different than if we were watching this on film, which I do really, really appreciate. And I think there's so much effective storytelling in this through musicals. Like you've said, I don't always think that we have to stick to that same structure when it is in a film, because in film, again, we're also um, looking at different rules than we are when it's on stage, which I just, I love. For you, what are some really effective storytelling elements, musical theater elements that are present in this film? Well, you mentioned the you mentioned the overture. This movie is it's one of those things where as soon as it starts and you just hear that that overture start, it gets you excited for it. Whether you've mm -hmm. seen it already or not, you know instantly the world that you are in. You get a you get a taste of all of the different songs and you also see this lovely um these images of chocolate being made. Mm -hmm. And it just, it sets the tone absolutely perfectly and goes right into Candyman. So immediately they do a wonderful job of setting the stage because they they set the, the, the love of chocolate mm -hmm. and the impact of Willy Wonka in this community. Mm -hmm. And then they pan over to Charlie and you see someone who is just on the outside of that, uh, physically and metaphorically on the outside of that world. Charlie Bucket is poor. And so you, he can't, he's not in the candy shop and he can't afford candy. And so you get the sense of Charlie and their poverty. So the the movie, it really does a fantastic job of having, of setting the scenes, first of all. You you really get a sense of the world and also where your main character fits into the world mm -hmm. before you get a sense of things changing. Yeah, no, you are absolutely correct. And to kind of jump off of that, I think the way they, they orchestrate the score, and again, it's also... 
Um, for anyone that knows the 1970s musical sound, this has the 1970s musical sound. Now, I will argue anyone in the house down that the 70s is one of the most influential decades in American musical theater that we would ever have. Definitely. It's such a beautiful, and I was thinking about this earlier, um, three of my favorite movie musicals came out in the late 60s and early 70s, and those are um, this movie, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, mm-hmm. and Pete's Dragon. And yes. they it's almost like a trifecta of, even though these were made in the late 60s, early 70s, there is something timeless about the sound of the music that makes it almost its own genre Mm -hmm. in a way that um as glorious as throwing out a musical singing in the rain it is a beautiful timeless musical but you can listen to the music and hear that it's dated in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and Pete's Dragon and Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory the music isn't dated the music just is and that's, I think, what what keeps this particular musical nostalgic for so many people. And this is also when they were still writing songs to be pop hits on the radio from a movie. So in this, you've got Candyman and... Um, Pure Imagination, which Candyman was recorded by like three different pop stars at the time, I believe, including Sammy Davis Jr. It was, um, yes. Yes, okay. I am not crazy. Good. Um, and, you know, in Chitty Chitty Bing Bang, you have several, like Hush by Mountain was on the radio. And then in Pete's Dragon, they hired a pop artist in Helen Reedy to play Nora. So, like, Candle on the Water is a 70s pop hit. She's not mm-hmm. the best singer. She has, like, a, a octave and a half range, but, like, Candle on the water is my favorite like it is it is so good um but i feel bringing up these three musicals they also chalk up to the chorus line the dream girls the annie uh you know these music company these these musicals that were opening on broadway at the same time the whiz um these were uh, you know, these were, uh, we were hearing a sound of an evolution of storytelling using music. And I think they still were capturing this idea of whether you can pinpoint it. There is an 11 o'clock number, if you will. There is an I want song. There is the exposition songs. They are here. They're just told in a little bit of a different way because it's a film versus a musical. And also in a film, it's they're typically shorter. We no longer had the you know we're just past the my fair ladies and the sound of musics where you know we are sitting down for a two and a half hour musical three hour movie musical with an intermission. This is a hundred minutes. Like this is the the length of what we come to expect now. You know this is what people want from live musical. They want a ninety minute musical. They can all go see no intermission and leave. Um, and you know so it's one of those things that I think. In addition, with the score, they combine, because this is even one where you take the songs out. None of the scenes feel contrived. They don't feel like they're talking down to the characters or the audience. The book scenes are just as wonderfully um, written, and they think about the language and the tone of the scenes and the score together, and they're fully interpolated like a stage musical would be, which we don't always get from contemporary movie musicals. There are things, uh, there's a reason why we don't get that many musicals that weren't on stage first. Like, you know, the high school musicals are, oddly enough, having to use that as, like, a genre choice, I guess. Or 
you know, it's that idea of a musical television show now versus a musical film. We are, most of the musical films we're getting are, they are adaptions from stage because this was the end of the era when you could still write a good movie musical that moved in the same way that a stage musical did and people were on board for it. Um, and so, you know, cause we were also getting so many adaptations of film at this time. It's interesting to think that like eight years later we would have Grease, which is one of the most well-known musical adaptations to film of all times. Like it's, it's just interesting of just kind of looking at this decade. And I, uh, what I, what I also like is I don't think any moment of that hundred minutes is wasted. I think every word that is chosen, every scene that we see, every moment of filming sets a tone or propels us to the end where we need to be and it's a really interesting use of storytelling where there's no wasted time even even like a song like cheer up charlie where again it's not progressing the plot but it's helping us figure out charlie and his mother's dynamic and the family dynamic none of it is a wasted moment absolutely and i i was just thinking because i was i was just watching this movie today and um as an actor, from, from an acting standpoint, this movie has some of the greatest one-off isolated scenes that I have mm -hmm. ever seen in the first half when you're, when you're looking at all of the, the different people all over the world trying to find their golden ticket. And so you see the scientist who's created the computer that can tell you where the golden tickets are. And then the computer is not. I mean, they're these gorgeous little skits, these comedic skits that last no more than a minute or two minutes. And then you have the the just glorious 70s woman who is who is looking for her husband who's been kidnapped I, I don't care what they want I'll give it I'll give them whatever they want I just want to have Harold back and then and then he says they want your, your case of golden yes and she goes how long will they give me to think about it like it is just the it's the most glory it's melodrama but they lean so far into it and then you never see this character again or even charlie science teacher or si teacher whatever i was homeschooled i don't know what kind of teacher he was um his teacher who has like math in one scene and he teaches science in another scene so like you know, yeah. Charlie's well, young enough that you still have one teacher for everything okay that makes sense but yeah that teacher who has like his own little arc of kind of being the 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 condescending teacher to to put you down in when you first see him and then Wonka bars class dismissed and then later on when he's just given up and and is very angry and and mm -hmm. and bitter in in that way that's you know there's a delicate balance that some teachers can get away with and so it's just they have these amazing characters and these snippets in time where you really get a sense that there are more people in the world, which mm -hmm. is something that not a lot of musicals on stage or screen can do successfully. Yes. Where you get you actually get a sense that we're we're focusing on Charlie, but they give us a glimpse of these other people. You get a glimpse of the factory workers in um in the salts peanut. Mm -hmm. Empire, and you do get that um, the scene with the therapist who's never seen again, and you yeah. get they're just these gorgeous like mini SNL skits mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that I just love it. 
Yeah, I'm gonna, we're gonna put a pin in it and come back to all of this because I think it's when we talk about the struggles of adaptation to stage, these are really great moments because it's do you, when you're also dealing with that this is adapted, it's a film adapted from a book that will then eventually be adapted to stage several times because there's the TYA version of this and then there is the the, the version that uh, you got to perform in. Um, but yes, there are these moments of, again, this could have very easily been a movie that was just for children but so much of this movie is so much more it's written with such intelligence that goes over children's heads so it's very fun it's bright colors it's candy it's little orange people it's everything that kids want but like you put Gene Wilder in a movie because it's going to be an event for the parents. It's like this movie is it's a masterclass in writing. It's a masterclass in performance. Um, and it's a masterclass in, in, in how you can structure a story. Because we also get that lovely... Um, they could get so lost in us meeting each of the 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 five kids or the four <laughs> kids, um, but we keep going back to the the American news anchor, and it's so smart to like have that we keep checking in there. And again, we're zipping through time, and we're only getting those moments that we really need. Um, and just Charlie being this outlier. But what's interesting to me too is now maybe it's something I've just always leaned into. But thematically, this is really interesting. In a way that a lot of Roald Dahl, his properties are. They are so multi-layered. They're so interesting. Though he has always hated the film adaptations. He's always hated adaptations of his work, um, which we can talk about a little bit about that. Uh, that like he wrote, he's credited to have written this script, but it wasn't working a hundred percent because it was too pure of an adaptation. And so they had, uh, David Seltzer came in who is uncredited for revising the script and adding the music. And like, it's also, I can't imagine this not being a musical because like as whimsical as the Tim Burton version of this is where they kind of amp up the world and everything. And, and it's very jovial and it's a fun movie to watch. Um, Colleen Atwood's design is a little, it's a little right here. It is, it is a lot. It is, it is an assault on the eyes, but I, you know, for that, the only musical moments are as was, uh, or are the Oompa Loompas and those are bops, but it is interesting. Like, I just feel like this story naturally needs those musical moments in order for us to really delve into the world. But also thematically, what's interesting because Roald Dahl writes on so many levels, each of these kids actually personify one of the seven deadly sins, which is mm -hmm. really interesting to look at us as like people. And again, this is like, 20 years after McCarthyism and after America's rebuilding or the world is rebuilding the way it is after World War II. And there's this idea of not just the American dream, um, but also this idea that as people, we want money and industry and all these things, which are also seen in the parents. Um, and so it's also, they do a really lovely job of this is such an international movie without making a point of it being international because each of the kids are from different places. We are seeing, I mean, they shot this in Munich. So like even Charlie's town doesn't feel like your typical American suburb, which I appreciate. Um, but kind of giving this scope, I just think there's so much right with this movie. And again, it's why it lives on in nostalgia, because it also pulls in all of those quotes. Like Wonka is constantly talking in riddles and rhymes and quoting other 
artists um, and writers, but also this movie has one of the scariest scenes that is so effective and so exhilarating, which is the tunnel, the, the boat tunnel. I know, the boat scene? I, I just watched that today, and now I, I have very distinct memories of vivid nightmares I used to mm-hmm. have after watching that scene, and the nightmares would come out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but watching it as an adult, it's... So for kids, it's just scary. It's just it's just scary. As an adult, I found myself trying to make sense of it, which I think is what the the adults in that situation would do. So it's it's I had this weird kind of, you know, coming to Wonka moment where I remember watching the movie as a kid and I remember all the feelings that I felt and the jokes that I got and everything that I experienced watching it as a young child, like as young as four or five. Mm-hmm. And then there's me in my 20s now watching it as an adult through the adult lens and that scene I mean there, there's this there's this image of a chicken getting its head cut off oh, there's like yes. there there are snakes there you see um uh, you see all these kinds of terrifying visions but as a kid what I saw was I saw the snakes I saw the the darkness but what my child brain focused on was that image that only Charlie seems to latch onto as scary. And that's the one of, um, uh, Slughorn. Yeah. 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 Grandpa Joe, there's Slughorn. And, And that was like that, like Slughorn to me in this film was like child catcher in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. He was like <gasps> this, just this yeah. ominous. And as an adult watching it, talking about Slughorn, I was like, how is this man getting access to all of these children mm-hmm. instantly? And there's that danger there that I didn't pick up on as a kid, but that, that tunnel scene, I I don't know who experienced what when they wrote and produced that tunnel scene, but I, it, it was it was genius. It was a visual just mind f. I was like, oh god. Yeah, and and it's it, it's one of those that sticks with people to this day. Like I know that's one of those scenes where it's. I think some people's fears emerged from that scene. Like I think people develop some, um, and you know, again, it's one of those things where it made the parents and adults and kids all seeing this all feel the same way, which is such a great equalizer. Um, but talking about that idea of the fear of Slughorn as a character was so interesting because the rest of the kids, there are all these beautiful, subtle performance moments of like when he says everlasting gobstopper, each of the kids react in a very different way um, mm-hmm. because they know that's what they're all there to get. And it's this idea of the corruption of youth, this idea of corporations buying people early on, um, you know, this idea of, 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 you're offered all these things. Cause like, I would love to know, like we know what Charlie is offered and to us like $10,000. Cause it's $10,000 that he offers him. Right. 
I th- yes, I, I believe it's ten, which in 1970. Well, he says he says ten thousand. Uh, he says ten thousand of these, but he holds up a stack of oh, of money, yes. so it's yeah. it's unclear exactly if it's if it's pounds because you also don't know what the currency is because Charlie right. picks up that like silver dollar looking thing, yeah. um, so it's it's it's. It's, it's kind of unclear, but he, he says 10,000 of these. So it might be dollars or it might be 10,000 stacks of, right. of and so, inch and a half which, bills. Which we know that like Charlie's family could actually really use. Um, and so it'd be interesting to know, because like Mike TV's family is the epitome of the middle class at the time. And, um, you know, Violet and uh, Violet and Veruca's family are higher they are upper what would become upper middle class they are business owners they are these things they get whatever they want and so it's one of those things that i can only imagine what each and augustus heaven knows what that little chubby boy was offered but like augustus sweetheart um Save some room for later. Save some room for later. Um, I will say, I did love that even though his mother was plus size, she's very glamorous. And she Mm -hmm. had lovely costumes. Um, I feel like that's, she's kind of what Edna in Hairspray should look like. Like, she's plus size, but she's still very lovely. Um, uh, But, you know, it's, I would, you know, and this is just looking into it more. I would love to know what they were in theory, what they were offered because the the interaction we see with Charlie is actually much more sinister because it's alone in a dark alley. And Um, you actually um, hear what he's saying because up until this point, you just see the same man come into the frame talking to these kids, whispering in their ears, pulling them aside. And so your brain goes, what... What is he saying? And then um, with the underscoring, the music changes. And so that gives you a hint to know that this isn't okay. And then that same music comes back. And also he corners Charlie in an alleyway. Charlie's running home and he jets out of like, how do you, how are you going to jet out from an alleyway in an alley? Like, and he jets out from some unseen place and blocks Charlie and says, this is what I want from you. This is what I'm willing to offer. And there's this danger and he doesn't threaten Charlie, but there's a sense of danger that you don't understand why it's not okay. I mean, from a kid's point of view, you don't understand why it's not okay, but you know, it's not. And as an adult, you're saying, oh, my God, stranger danger, stranger, stranger danger. danger, man in an alley with a small child. Yeah. And Somebody do something. It's a pale brunette, sallow man, man that, like, that, like, you know, he's, 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 he looks he's, like the child catcher. He looks like the, looks like the silent yes, man from with that Charlie scar on his face. Uh, uh, for yes. what, what reason other than making him look dastardly? It's the 1970s. Who knows? Uh, you know, the, but this is also economically a time where the world is struggling. We are in an oil crisis. People stopped going to college because nobody could afford it. The promises that were made in the 1950s were, you know, they were not helping people, which is like why it's so interesting that like musicals like Annie were being written because in a way, socially, you can look at them as like propaganda pieces almost like it's this weird thing. But you talk about underscoring and I meant to bring this up about the end of Candyman when he does the the Candyman thinks it should. And he like it, it diminishes. The chord goes from bright and sunny and diminishes as we get to Charlie. And then that chord progression always keeps coming back when something uneasy is happening. And it's, it's the best like musical tell of like, Hey, everyone look at this, but it's also just this like a musical nerd. It's such a moment that you're like, Ooh, I love a revisit. I love a good. Underscoring is some of my 
favorite things and I and I wish it was done more in staged musicals. Mm-hmm. I it's one of the things that I love about movie musicals where um where characters have a theme and mm-hmm. and we as the audience um, your your average everyday audience may not be able to pick up on every character has a theme, but um, it evokes certain emotions in you. So there's this, I'm, I'm going off on a tangent, but there's um, someone made a video on YouTube of, um, and put it on YouTube of the, the fight scene in, in Captain America Civil War. And what they did was every time a new superhero comes on, they play the superhero theme for that, but like from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And it is the most thrilling thing. And I've seen that scene a hundred times, but with the underscoring of this is this character coming in and this is this character coming in and the added element of music, it just elevates it and that's what I love about these movie musicals is that the underscoring elevates it in a way that you don't you don't realize it and and you don't know unless you know Mm -hmm. well and it's also one of those things that like it was it's a beautiful thing that you can do in film because you can think about underscoring second you can put the story together and then as you're editing it, you can like build this beautiful score Um, and you know it's just one of those things that over the years we have come to like I did, like Pirates of the Caribbean would not be nearly as thrilling without that score of the, we all know the bum bum ba bum bum ba bum bum ba bum and in a musical film you are correct that the underscoring is something that is just as important as the libretto songs and the score with the actual like musical score is so important and it is something that I wish you know some classic musicals have a nice little underscoring but we don't always because then you're having to balance you're having to do these things and for so long musicals were not amplified so you're having to talk over music being played so I kind of get why they're there but I wish and then there's wish- the timing of it I mean it's mm-hmm. it's a whole added element to the tech process and also to the rehearsal process because actors they 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 grow to rely on the music because it's all part of the story it's mm-hmm. all part of that world so I I get it but like do better. Do Put better. It in there. Well, it's because, like, as musical as musical performers, like, especially in musical theater, like, contemporary musical theater, when you've got someone like Jason Robert Brown or Tom Kitt, Stephen Sondheim, you are relying on that vamp to get you into the song. And so mm-hmm. I, I do get it, but they are those things of, like, I, you know, um, uh, uh, Dolly Parton, and uh, I'm blanking on who her orchestrator was for nine to five. Um, and I believe this is just conspiracy theory. I think, I think Stephen Schwartz was a ghostwriter in nine to five, the musical. I think someone out there, someone out there, correct me. I think, um, but they underscored a lot of nine to five, which I thought was really interesting, but it is, it kind of keeps that pace up. And in those scenes, they kind of give you a little bit of those, those moments. And I would think it really helped keep the, the tempo and timing. But this movie is one where like the, um, 
like Golden Ticket is played under so much of Charlie's things. Um, and even like Golden Ticket is such a wonderful moment of, uh, it's such a classical musical theater song. Like it's just such, yes. it's such an exposition song. It's so good. It is, it is getting us to that next thing that we need. Um, and in this, um, I just thought of it in this, it is played under a lot of what Charlie does. But the interesting thing is um, in musicals, um, in, in live musicals anyway, uh, stage production, the the song will be used as underscoring after the song has already happened. Mm-hmm. But in this movie, it's unique in that you hear Golden Ticket, um, not just in the overture, but mm-hmm. anytime Charlie gets excited, it is his trumpet mm-hmm. song of, you're the do-do-do-do-do-do. Mm-hmm. Like when he when he finds the the money when he um opens the when he opens the candy bar as he's running you hear it and that all happens a long time before mm-hmm. grandpa joe actually sings it so you it's it's like subliminal messaging yeah. this yeah. it it makes you happy because this is associated this music has been associated with charlie's happy emotion and now this happy emotion is being shared with the entire family and also you as an audience mm-hmm. member and typically when we hear it before it always dissolves out into the weird ba da ba 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 da ba ba Bum. And like when he goes to where he comes around the bend and it's as the Wonka sign lights up, which is what is such um, an interesting moment to watch this wonderful underscored moment of Charlie just watching. And I can imagine when they were like, OK, we just need you to turn around and stare at the at the smokestack. That's all you're going to do, because for me, that's that's another scene where the underscore makes it of the music. And then you get the the little the bell ding with each it's it's so it's just as like a storytelling nerd it's a moment that i just really love and i find really effective and just really rich and warming Mm -hmm. oh this is another going off topic a little this is another one of those one-off characters um just because you mentioned the the smoked stack What is up with that, with that, like, janitor man pushing the cart who has, like, just, just feels the urge to talk to Charlie about the factory and, and delivers one of the, the things, one of those lines that my mom and I quote all the time, which is that nobody ever goes in and nobody Nobody ever ever goes up. (laughs) (laughs) And then, and then he disappears into the night and it's like, okay. I think he was a tanker. Yeah, he was... So I don't know, man. I don't, you know, because that's one of those. Again, Charlie has a lot of Stranger Damer moments that makes me go, "Run, Charlie, run, my dude." Um, but again, it's it sets us up for Willy Wonka as a character, kind of spouting nonsense because mm-hmm. he gets that he gets that poem. And again, it's something that they chose to swap out in the new film version. They did, you know, in 2004, when that happened, you know, it's grandpa Joe telling the, the whimsical story of working at the factory. It was, you know, it was those moments of they swapped those out, but I love, it's almost sinister, but it's so interesting. Cause he's like, if this were, um, this also is very similar to like a Dungeons and Dragons campaign for me. The way the story goes through, like the D, the the DM drops that character where you're like, oh, 
I feel like I'm going to need to remember this later, but like, it's so chilling and so weird. And he was so haggard. Like, it's just so. And it sets up the, um, the, the ominous air Mm -hmm. and the, the suspension. So it's a brilliant thing that, that they do. If you just look at the, if you look at the breakdowns of the scenes, you see, um, and I might flip one or two of these, but you see Candyman. Mm-hmm where they talk about how Willy Wonka is the greatest chocolate maker in the world and everybody loves him. And then pans to Charlie, who you get a sense that he can't afford chocolate or that he, for whatever reason, can't have chocolate. And then he goes immediately to um, the the paper stand where where he works as a paper boy, we assume, but that, that mm-hmm. boss who's, you know, where Charlie gets his first payday. And then he's walking back home and then you and then he sees the the factory and he just kind of turns and he sees it and then that's where that man comes in and so you set up the the magic the the love of Willy Wonka mm-hmm. and then minutes later the other side of that coin which is the shroud of mystery and so now we as audience members are captivated by it and we say well what what is what is this deal? And then we long for it as much as, as Charlie does. Even if Charlie doesn't realize that he longs to know what's in that factory, mm-hmm. it's, it's just, we're, we're on that ride with Charlie. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's so interesting. And I think, um, before we kind of transition to the next bit, I think the talking about the design of this from top to bottom is so smart in helping the world building um because one the 1970s and coming out of the late 60s because this really we have to look at this as like a late 60s film not a 70s film the bright colors that are used like even just talking about the wonka wrappers and all the wonka products the color sets us up because what they do is Charlie's town where Wonka exists and Charlie's world, they're kind of drab. They're very muted colors. And then some of the kids, like you have that one little brunette kid that's like, Wonka's giving away five golden tickets that we see Mm -hmm. in the Candyman scene. He's in that bright red sweater because we want to look at him. But then we get all of these colors from the other kids in their cities. And then when we go into Wonka and it's this bright colors, seeing Charlie in this kind of muted color, you know, on top of that is is such an interesting use. Yes. And one thing, um, just talking about the colors, it's amazing the way that they I never would have thought to do this because you think candy and you think bright colors. So how do you make Wonka stand out in a shop that is full of brightly colored candy? They made the majority of the wrapper brown. 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 Well, I mean, what color is, you know, it's one of those things. It's so, but then using that orange and that pink and white, they are just so, and that's why I loved, I think it was for the, 2004 movie when they released the retro the the movie designs of the candy from this movie and people were buying it up one just out of nostalgia and memorabilia collectors are crazy they're weird they're wonderful um but yeah you were so right especially because this is one we don't really know where in time we are because we're not quite in the 1970s but it's enough that we have tv but it still feels 
in time, some weird place in time. Right. That candy shop is very much like a 1950s go down and, and have yeah. ourselves a soda pop and, mm-hmm. you know, get it, get us a root beer float from this place. Like you, it just seems, it, it seems like a staple. The candy shop yes. seems like a staple, like it has been around, like that might have been a place that the that shop owner's father owned before him. And it it seems like a place that all the kids gather and that's been yeah. the way of it. Oh yeah. Well and it's a place that their parents well, I mean one, this is the sixties, so like you could walk around and your parents didn't care. Um but it's also because the interior feels even older. It feels nineteen thirties, nineteen forties, because it is all that mahogany. And so again, it's one of those, it's how do you make these colors stand out? Because you know, your soda hop is always in yellow and white or or seafoam green and white with the little, you know, it's a thing. But all of the decisions into the design from top to bottom, and then even getting into like the candy room that's like a forest that grows candy you know it's it's one of those weird things that um you know it's all all the decisions were made and again you know being a designer myself and sitting through countless design meetings for every show i've ever worked on you like to think that this was a huge point of conversation and how they chose how they chose to put Augustus in a hunter green, but then Violet's in like a jewel blue. Veruca is in that bright red and Mike is in that sickening yellow. And then Charlie's in gray, gray Navy. Like, you know, it's one of those things. They are the primary color kids. And so it's one of those, it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's an interesting thing of these choices that they made that all really pay off and watching it as an adult it's so funny because you always want to live in that room as a kid and then I went oh 90% of that is inedible and they're still having them bite it anyway like you can tell that like the licorice pole is obviously like plastic and things Mm -hmm. but like um, I found one of those moments of like the teacup that Gene Wilder grabs that's yellow it's a different color yellow because it is actually edible and everything else around it looked plaster but um, it's edible uh, in the sense that it's like wax. Right. Well, it was probably like candy lips. Like it was something that um, I feel like they either went, Gene, we got one shot for this, or they had a table. <laughs> <laughs> 15 of them that they had to keep everybody away from. And again, this is also before a lot of union rules and things. So I can only imagine what this movie was like to work on from a union technical side. <laughs> oh, definitely. I think I... I read somewhere, and correct correct me if I'm wrong, but that they had to delay filming for a day after they, um, right before they go into the TV room where they're on that, like, car that gets covered in in foam mm-hmm. because it, like, it, it, like, burned or, like, rashes happened or it, oh, it was, yes. like... Yeah, I, I heard the same thing, yeah. Yeah, and I... I can't remember exactly what it was or what happened, but that there was a delay in filming because of that. I mean, it goes back to the whole, the whole like asbestos in in the snow in Wizard of Oz. Like you, the union rules, the, we've come a long way. Yeah. I'll say that we've come I, a long way. I agree. Well, and you know what's interesting? Just talking about this before we we move on to the next section. Apparently, at one point, all six members of the Monty Python troupe all wanted to play Willy Wonka and were all up for casting at one point. So, like, literally all six of them, um, before, and, and then because of that, three of the six who were still alive for the Tim Burton version were all in the Tim Burton version in one way, shape, or form, which I think is, wow. is very, um, apparently also Fred Astaire was up for, um, was up for, um, Willy Wonka, and I was like, that would have, 
I, I don't, I would, and uh, I would not have wanted to see that, but, um, Joel. I would have Gil- loved to see a Fred Astaire Candyman, like a little cameo, yes. just like, mm-hmm. see Fred Astaire dancing all over a candy shop because Fred Astaire just has that, that lovely magnetic, um, uh, just energy about him that that's also non-threatening because in watching the the and maybe this is just my my jaded 2020 um sense of self coming through but in watching the the Candyman, there are a couple of moments where i'm like you sir i don't know that i would have made that choice to look at that child that way you know because you have to be very careful in Mm -hmm. this day and age of how of how you how you look at children, how you interact with children, because it's so easy to get the wrong idea. And um, as you mentioned before, with that diminishing chord at the end of Candyman, um, he he holds he a, a little girl gives him a lollipop. He takes the wrapper off and he gives it back to her. And that look that he gives mm-hmm. her, paired with the diminishing chord, and it's just a split second. And it's like it has it has nothing to do with with the movie. And I'm not saying that there was ever a thought of like, oh, what's the the dark untold secrets of the candy shop owner, you know, but it's just (laughs) but it was just like I, I looking as an actor or as a director would say, you know, and then it's just one of those things that yeah, didn't yeah. necessarily age. If mm-hmm. I were making this movie today, I would keep the scene exactly the way it was, but let it pan completely off of the candy man and the mm-hmm. children before the chord diminishes to Charlie at the window, because it mm-hmm. starts right at the end of that song. I'm yeah. big on the underscoring in this, yeah. if you can't tell, yeah. but, um, but anyway, uh, Fred Astaire just is a perfect example of someone who is, non-threatening like I in in all the the movies that I have seen and I just I don't see Fred Astaire being threatening it's just you almost have to have the 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 whimsy and the joy of a child yourself and so Willy Wonka no but that opening Candyman scene would have been phenomenal Yeah, yeah yeah and that's one of those things is I think we don't meet him until over halfway through the film. Like he's really the whole movie, even though the book is Charlie and the chocolate factory, they called this Willy Wonka and the chocolate factory, you know, for reasons. Um, but you know, your actor of Willy Wonka will set the tone for your entire film. It's also going to auto sell the film to a lot of people. And I think having Gene Wilder was so smart, but also just looking at that, it also was almost Joel Gray, which is such, again, would have been a very interesting other Willy Wonka um, or Peter Sellers, um, who people know from the original uh, Pink Panther movies, or John Pertwee, who is a British icon. He was the third doctor in Doctor Who. Um, but I just, I can't imagine this with anybody but um, uh, Gene Wilder, because there is something very sinister about... Um, uh, something very, very sinister about, uh, uh, about Willy Wonka. And once, once Augusta goes and he's like, oh no, wait, stop, don't. And you're like, oh, okay. okay. Yes. I, I mean, there is, you I do get a little you. sense of, um, this, you, you see the, the, like a Gene Wilder, young Frankenstein, mad mm-hmm. scientist there. He's just making candy. 
Mm-hmm. And there is something a, a little off about him, but but in these, I love the way that Gene Wilder's Willy Wonka has these moments where he's making jokes just for himself, yes, and he's yes. not laughing at the jokes. He just he states them as as though they're facts, and they are facts. Yeah, yeah, and absolutely. He, and it's like he has this. Um, this Cheshire Cat kind of sensibility about him where um, you may think he's crazy, he may know he's crazy, but everything he does is intentional. Yeah, yeah, you are, yeah, you're a thousand percent correct. And what's interesting, we talk about Fred Astaire as the Candyman, but actually what was interesting is Sammy Davis Jr. wanted to play that role. He begged for that role, Um, but the... um, uh, but uh, the director actually felt that having a star in that role would break the reality of the world we were in and distract from the world building, which I think is so, so interesting because also Anthony Newley uh, also wanted to play that role and he was a British pop star of the, the 50s and 60s. And so I think it's so interesting that like this, there were smaller name actors who were in a lot of these roles and it wasn't like, the world he was creating was so much more important for him than the names he was getting for the film, which I actually, I kind of wish more people would do because Definitely. there's so many, uh, just to use an example, the Baz Luhrmann, Great Gatsby, which I'm actually a big fan of. I love the Great Gatsby. Having Toby Maguire play Nick felt like a waste. Like that is a great star vehicle. Like that is an, un- like Nick, the whole point of Nick is to be a complete unknown. He is a bystander in someone else's story. And so I think having an unknown in that would have been a much stronger choice. So I do think it's interesting that idea well, of, you know, of oh, uh, go, 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 go. Oh, just uh, talking about the, the unknown that, that is a, a tool that, that Hollywood at least, you know, for some time tried to, um, tried to words, tried to implement um and they they tried to uh, un, until we got into this whole it has to be a big star for every single role or your movie won't sell um but in uh saving private ryan they cast matt damon as private ryan because he was an unknown they wanted an unknown for private ryan but unbeknownst to those filmmakers in between filming private ryan and releasing private ryan out came goodwill hunting and he was a huge star and then he was a huge he was a huge huge star and they were like well crap Crap. you know (laughs) but i i would have loved to see a sammy davis jr cameo in that Mm -hmm. but i I respect and I agree with the decision to have Gene Wilder really be the only big star. Mm-hmm. And it's, it, it, it's glorious storytelling. It really is from top to bottom. Now, so I think this is a good chance to transition. Is there anything as we're watching now, I, from a storytelling standpoint, from a world building creatively, is there anything that you just, it doesn't, it doesn't, work for you is there anything that you would change now not um not i guess because i guess the question of does it still stack up now thematically in a world where we are changing things um but i guess when we're looking at it from like a script standpoint movie standpoint film uh storytelling standpoint is there anything that just doesn't work for you um nothing that nothing that doesn't work for me i mean in, in terms of in terms of storytelling nothing that that doesn't work for me. I think they do a great job of saying, if you don't understand this, you're not meant to. 
mm-hmm. that this is this is a Willy Wonka secret and it adds to the shroud of mystery. Um, I'm big on the subtle moments, though. And one thing as a from from an acting standpoint, there are a couple of moments where the children, the golden ticket winners, other than Charlie, <clears throat> allude to the fact that their parents know about Slughorn. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and I, 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 th- I would love the story more if, and I know why they, why they did this. You know, they wanted to kind of remind everyone that Slughorn had spoken to all the children. But there's this one moment where they're getting into the car where um, Mike TV's mom says, remember everything that you see, you know, like you can, you can tell that they're all being dastardly. And I think that, I mean, it, it, I would prefer it if it was only Charlie that talked to grandpa Joe about Slughorn because Mm -hmm. it strengthens that bond between the two of them. And that Charlie does tell grandpa Joe everything. And it would also have made the children more vicious if it's not something that's um, that's encouraged by their parents, that this is just a greedy child. And also, um, I don't feel that the parents needed to be villains. As soon as they right. alluded to the fact that the parents knew about Slughorn, the parents became villains. And I don't think the parents are villains. I think the parents are just cautionary tales. Yeah. And I think, I think... I like that better because I do. I think it's an, an example of like nature versus nurture that I think, you know, we're intrinsically, none of us are born evil or mis or misguided, but like each of their parents was trying to do the best thing they could for them. And then that just didn't work for those children um, because those children become little nightmares or Charlie becomes incredibly like kind, um, you know? So it's, it's those things that I think if we, see the parents as like unwilling or or unknowing participants in their children being their children um and like the children having those learned habits and taking advantage of those i do yeah. think it makes more of an interesting thing of oh well because the because the 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 difference between kids and parents is children don't necessarily understand the ramifications of their actions which each of these kids do learn in this movie that's a, that is the thing this is that learning moment for them um I agree with you. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. One one other thing, and this is this this might be where where you're going with this. Things that don't stand up in time um, is just the Oompa Loompas are a very delicate. <laughs> that yeah. is that is such a very delicate thing, and um, one of one of Veruca's most famous lines is, "Daddy, I want an Oompa Loompa now." And I would have loved for that to be the moment that her father says, Veruco, honey, we don't buy people, you know, and, and Wonka to say, no, they work for me. You know, like I, I asked them or if he had said not all of them, you know, wanted to. But I mean, they're just I it, it's such a delicate thing because in today's day and age where we are more conscious of of how things play out and also racial sensitivities um you, even though there there are no oompa loompas um in in real life the, you you do have to be just kind of aware of the of the implications and so 
you can't have Charlie and the Chocolate Factory or Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory without the Oompa Loompas. They are, you think of, they are synonymous with the story. Um, but I wonder if there is a way, and, and they, they handled it relatively, you know, they didn't do a ba- a horrible job of it in this movie um because Gene Wilder says they they had no way to de- they had no way to defend themselves they were getting gobbled up by you know um but i i would have i would have loved or would love just a line or two of of something that that said that it it was their choice Right. And maybe not all of them went to the factory, you know, right. or something just just something small and and a, a better response to Veruca's I want an Oompa Loompa, yeah. you know, because it it is like, you, no, no, honey. Mm-hmm. Like so that there was even a line for her father. Like, nah, yeah. we're well, not. I, doing even, that. <laughs> I even agree that. um you know, it's one of those things that I, this is something that I don't think they actually handled any better. I think they actually handled it worse in the Tim Burton version of having one actor play all of them, um, who is, again, it's a, he, he is a small person. And so this idea of, and you know, because for the Oompa Loompas, they were all orange because they pulled people from all over the world and most of them didn't actually speak any English. And so when they made him... A, a native individual in the new version, it is then this idea of like savage versus civilized. And it's this whole thing where do you, do you just make them, do you lean into the fantasy aspect of them and have them be diverse, have them, they all have their own faces. There's something dehumanizing by having them all be identical. Definitely. Um, And so, again, this is from a perspective where we are. And also, it's like that needs to not be the only time that we cast small people is in roles where you need something like this. It's, you know, this isn't where, you know, I will say Disney just handled it really well in Artemis Fowl of all the fairy folk. They are normal sized people. The girl that plays Holly is short just because she is a younger woman. But like cast people and then digitally make them smaller. I mean, this is from now, but like, why weren't there any women? Why couldn't they be different skin tones? Why did they have to be orange? And I'm sure that is in the book. I do say I have never read the book. I have not read either of the novels. Um, I actually haven't read any of the world doll books, uh, except James and the giant peach. Um, and so, you know, maybe that was a, a decision creatively, but yeah, I, I agree with you there of, I think the Oompa Loompas can be handled a little better. I do like the idea that he's like, I'm giving them a place to be because they were going to die out in their natural habitats. But then again, it's that colonialism and the whole idea of how we create chocolate is actually very colonial and very Western and very. And it's a, it's a little, it's it's a little white saviory too. You know, like I think that there is no, there, there is no perfect way to handle the Oompa Loompas, and um, my mom, my mom read me the the book as a as a kid. She would read me a chapter a night. We were one of one of those families, you know. You read a chapter a night, and um, it was it was so much fun. And I was a huge Roll Doll fan. Um, 
I, I read all of, I read all of his books and, um, I will say that, um, the, the newer Tim Burton version is closer to the book, both tonally and content wise. And there are things that are, that are completely different that, that were just made a, a a little brighter in in the Gene Wilder movie, whereas Roald Dahl, those books are dark. I mean, if you if you read The Witches, um, one yeah. of those children loses a limb. Yeah. like it's yeah. it is it is absolutely dark. The stuff that that Roald Dahl puts in the books, and the thought behind that is um, children children don't experience less just because they're children. Right. You know, like the the scary things still happen to kids as much as scary things can happen to adults and adults try to protect them. But, um, oh, there I go off on a tangent again. But oh, I love it. I love it. <laughs> but the um, but the the Oompa Loompas in it, it is a little explained, you know, the their their native land. And um, I don't I don't know that there is any perfect way to handle the Oompa Loompas um, in, t- in today's day and age just because of where we are as a society and how far we still have to go as a society and um, the, the world history. So even if you do lean into the fantasy of it, of the, the Native people, I mean, look at, look at the movie Avatar, Um with the blue people, not the last airbender. Um, <laughs> just for clarification, um, the those are those people are are blue with tails and trees that they can hook up to via their tails. And still, you watch that and you do see that white savior narrative. So I think um, people are going to put themselves in a film regardless. They are going to relate to it and say, well, how would I react if if this were me? Or they're going to identify with it. And when you have a movie, especially when you have a movie like Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory or Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the older version or the newer version, where you can count the people of color on one hand and the only the only people of color that you have in these films is the the the, the these people that come from a native land in your mind this is the ethnicity and in the and in the newer version the the actor who plays all of the oompa loompas is a minority and that is the only that that is the only other um, minority in that film, and I'm trying to think back to the the newer film. No, they're they're all all of no, the children yeah, are white. Yeah, yeah. This is so. That is my biggest complaint, and I love that you actually got there before I did. This this movie and the remake are both painfully white. Like they are a cause. Like everyone, it's so white. Helena Bottom Carter's in it. Like, like <laughs> we love her. But she's she's just she is a ghostly individual. So like it's just one of those. Yeah, like none of those. And again, no property of this film or this book has addressed this until the musical. 
was the first time that, like, we saw diverse bodies in this story. Well, you know, um, interesting, interesting uh, story. So Roald Dahl's um, daughter or wife, someone, someone related to Roald Dahl actually said that when Roald Dahl wrote the book of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Charlie was a black little boy, but the publishers had him change it because they didn't think that a book about a black kid would sell as well as but so charlie was supposed to be black and i can only think about i I can only imagine the kind of cultural significance and importance that would have or Mm -hmm. or not like what i can't imagine like because it, it is a real thing if charlie had been black if there was a black boy on the cover would it have sold as well? And if it didn't sell right. as well, then would it be a movie? All right. So if it sold as well and then was made into a movie, um, it was still made into a movie with a black lead. Would they have whitewashed Charlie because studio executives are are even stronger on the the it needs to sell than book publishers? Mm-hmm. So would it have sold? Would they have whitewashed Charlie and still had a blonde hair, blue eyed boy as Charlie, or would they have kept that black lead? If they had kept that black lead, would I mean it, it's a whole lot of it's a whole mm-hmm. lot of what ifs, but mm-hmm. it just breaks my heart that because one publisher back in whenever the book was or one editor publisher whatever whatever it was that the book was published said hey this is something we can't do now mm-hmm. now if they were to cast a black kid as charlie i mean people would be in an uproar not you know yeah, yeah. There, there are always those those bigots say but charlie's supposed to be white and then there's that then there's that also also that that cultural ramification of saying if charlie was black why the black kid got to be the poor one right, right. so <laughs> there there's so many different layers to this but it just breaks right. my heart well, and the book was published in 1964. And so actually, I think having Charlie be African or just be black, um, um, uh, cause I believe it actually would take place in Britain, not in America. It's a long story cause Roald Dahl was a British writer. Um, you know, it's this idea of it actually brings commentary on the deep poverty for people of color across the world in the 1960s. And so, you know, it's one of those things that I, yeah, I, I can only imagine, but also looking at film of the time, just looking at it from a historical lens, this was when the black exploitation film was becoming huge. This was when the action film, um, and so there were five roles for people of color. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if you were um, any sort of brown Latinx, you were a drug dealer, you were uh, a hotel owner, if you were Indian, you were um, shady and owned a laundromat or a dim someplace, if you were Asian, like there were all these things that were expected and they weren't writing out of these stereotypes and they were not right. But I only imagine that they would not have actually greenlit this movie in the scale that they did if Charlie had been a black lead, which is wrong. Um, And, but I can only imagine, I love that you bring up the point what would this movie have done for the three or four generation of kids that came after this if Charlie had been black? Like, what would that have meant to little black boys, little black girls that were reading? Especially because this is in when Ruby Bridges is walking to school alone. Mm-hmm. And this is when American schools are integrating. This is when the UK publicly, whether they meant it or not, was like, 
bringing down legislation against racism and things. And so this is, I can only imagine that this is another one of those cogs that if one person had stood up and done the right thing, where could we be for people of color in entertainment? Where could we be for just people of color? Like, you know, it's one of those things that's still like, where is... Would would we've gotten our first black Disney princess well before we got Tiana? And could she have been something other than a waitress? You and I have talked about this on right. my other show, Dope Open Dreams, that it's just one of those things that like, what would this one choice of having Charlie and his whole family be um, black? And, you know, that would have also been a moment where I would go, cool, could we not kill Charlie's dad? Then could we actually show a really lovely functional family like they get like they did in the sequel? There are all those other things that then I would have liked to seen other choices change. Because, again, like you brought up, it's like, where do we want to have the poor kid be the black kid? Like, you know, is that is that a choice we would want to make? But. But then you also have the imagine the ramifications that this would have had. Definitely. And especially because so much of people of color in entertainment, especially black people, um, it, it is them. It is them. Them struggling, or they're 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 drug dealers, or they're some kind of thuggy gangster. You know. Um, but here is a story of a little boy. And just stripping race away completely. This is the story of a little boy who loves his family, who does everything that he can to uh, to to help. He has a job. He uh, he gives. He he buys a loaf of bread with his first paycheck. He mm-hmm. gives the extra money to his mom, all except for that one little coin that he says, "I'm going to buy your tobacco from now on, Grandpa Joe." Um, it is a just a good kid this is the quintessential underdog who has everything going against him who still is positive who still is a lovely human being and then at the end um Willy Wonka said uh you know what happened to to the man who got everything he ever wanted he lived happily ever after what would this have done uh just a, a little boy who is the quintessential underdog, the ideal Laura Ingalls perfect kind of child. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then he gets a break. Yeah. He gets a break and it all works out in the end. Mm -hmm. And I just, oh, it's, that's the kind of, that's the kind of story that I, that I talk about when I say, why do we always have to be struggling? What I wouldn't mm-hmm. give for a movie about a black person who has a minor inconvenience. Right. That's not written by Tyler Perry. <laughs> that That's a whole different <sighs> podcast. <laughs> and that's not a podcast I feel like I need to have my voice in. That's 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 one where I can just, I can hand over to you all and be like, listen, yeah, I need y'all to say, I need y'all to say. But like, it's, yeah, it's, it's one of those that I just, it's one of those things that we can look at and pinpoint and go, this one moment could have changed so much for so many people. Or, you know, this is not to bring up JK Rowling, but if, you know, if she had, instead of saying, oh, I always envisioned Hermione as not white. You had every opportunity to put it in the book. Put it in the book. Like, don't let the audience 
envision like don't don't let them put themselves in it because like people who are not white have, have been having to do that literally for hundreds of years not only that but put like in the book. but like as an author when you're sitting there describing someone's um you know describing someone's appearance if if we if we look at the description of Hermione now if she says she always envisioned Hermione as being black that in that that is that is also it's a different podcast but it's also problematic to me because the physical descriptions we have of Hermione are um wild crazy bushy hair and big teeth those are those are the those are the physical descriptions and it's like what you couldn't tell based on that that she was supposed to be black well no and then we also have the fact that so if she i think what we have here is a case of after the fact add-ons which which Mm -hmm. she who shall not be named has been known to do in in recent um history because she she had no problem she had she had no problem um, she had no problem making it painfully and um, offensively obvious um, who Cho Chang was. So. Yes. I'm just going to push, yes. push that to the side for, for a different conversation on a different <laughs> podcast. But, you know. Well, <laughs> we, will, we will put. So uh, we put a pin in it. We're coming back to it. So actually, this is a nice transition. So you, as an African-American woman, got to play Violet Beauregard. And I believe the it was the same on Broadway, yes, as as well? It was. Um, and the, the musical started um, in uh, on the, the West, West End. And yeah. in all three of those, uh, all three places, Violet is black. Love it. Yeah, it's it. it's great. I I loved playing Violet. Um, and what what is interesting is in for these staged versions, um, it it was kind of how to put this. It was it was written for a black person. You can listen to the music here stylistically. Okay. That it 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 is. It is supposed to have a a black sound. Flare, great, which is in itself kind of a problem. Like if we're shoehorning someone to, because if I remember correctly, all the rest of the kids were portrayed by white people. Yes. Yes. Um. Okay. There have been there there have been some some Verucas who have been other ethnicities. So they've been, they've been open to it. So, um, on, on tour, one of, one of our Veruca understudies, um, was, was played by, by someone of, of Asian descent or, you know, uh, some, something other, other than, other than white. Um, so it's, it, it, the, the, the possibility is there. Um, but in, all of those iterations, the, the main cast has been all white except for Violet and Violet's father. Great. So, you know, so that's the thing. So as we're talking about adapting a film into oh, a film and book, because I think one of those things when you've got 
a property that's this prevalent, you can't not look at the film and the book together and separately. Um, what are some things that we see in this movie that you think just automatically are a challenge to adapt to a stage? As someone who has lived this story on stage across the country, what were some things from seeing this as like a viewer to then transitioning into the room? What were some just challenges you knew that were kind of to kind of come about uh, for this? Um, well, the, the, the big chocolate elephant in the room, um, the candy room, there is nothing, there is, I, wow, it is, I don't want to say impossible, but from a budgetary standpoint, unless you're doing like a one month long engagement and then it all, you know, and, and you hope to God to recoup, um, (laughs) We have all built up, whether you watch the book or either one of the movies, we have built up this candy room in our mind that anything short of the theater itself transforming around you will not do it justice. So in theater, we do have this suspension of, of disbelief and, um, and it's and, and it and it serves us pretty well for the most part. So we have um you know, we can we can believe that that people can be born green. We can believe that these people walking around on two legs are actually animals and and that lions just walk straight up. That's what they do. Um in, in this <laughs> world. Uh but in in this story, because it is um a, a Wizard of Oz sense of being transported to a new world. Mm-hmm. And that happens in the movie. In the movie, they set up, this is average everyday life. You see mm-hmm. the candy shop, so you see a business, you see um, a, a therapist, you see a teacher, you see a home, you see everyday life, you see pedestrians, and then you go into the factory and the factory is this new magical place. So it's, if we start off and everything's magical, it's easy to have that suspension of disbelief, but way harder when you establish this is life and we relate to that. This is life. And then it gets transformed. And so the, the suspension of disbelief is once you get into the candy room, the thought is, this doesn't look that different. You know, the, the thought is that, that like we, we can go to Candytopia. This is Candytopia. Like what is, what is special? So the heightened, the, the, the heightened level just needs to be way more because we started in a, in a place of normalcy. And so, um, that's, that's one thing that, short of short of millions of millions of dollars in a budget and and months of sold out houses no one is going to be able to really give that justice to to do that candy room justice because of how magical it just needs to be of everything else i would say the most important visual is um so in the movie, Willy Wonka says, make a wish. No, he says, he says, hold your breath, make a wish, count to three. Um, in the musical, he says, close your eyes, make a wish, and count to three. So we close our eyes, um, and then 
as as he's singing the first line of pure imagination the the backdrop is lifting and revealing the candy room so we as an audience when we close our eyes we want to open it and feel like we are in oz like it needs to be just like every everything around you needs to change you need to feel fully immersed in a way that um is not impossible to do in theater, but it's damn expensive. Mm-hmm. And it just... It's, it's, well, and you're working within the parameters of a black box. Like, legitimately, it's hard to do some of those things. Um, now, it's, it's funny kind of to think of a lot of your career on Broadway, because you've had... Um, other than like the revival of Bye Bye Birdie, you've done three, you've been in three major adaptations from film or television properties between Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, SpongeBob, and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which is really, oh, really cool. And How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Oh, and Grinch. I forgot that you were so in Grinch. I, I yes, love so... a musical that takes place in a different world. <laughs> well, I love so a magical world. Things that you made that comment of we have to immerse ourselves. The audience needs to be immersed. And I will say, we've had this conversation before, but I will always sing the praises of SpongeBob because of the pure immersion that you are in from the moment you walk in the theater um, in into that version of Bikini Bottom. And I saw Grinch, I believe the last year it was on Broadway. Um, and it was one of those things that like, I felt like I was in Whoville, like it, despite like, you know, even though a lot of it was like tinsel curtains and things like they made it work. And so what is something for you as a performer who is maybe intentionally or not intentionally ended up working in a world of of adaptation? Um, what what are what are some things that you, again, just like to see or you hope to see as a performer in those when you are working in a rehearsal room or when you walk into the space for the first time? Um, I, as far as adaptations, the, the most, the most important thing to me is not forgetting your source material. There are, (laughs) there, there is a tendency to say, okay, so this is, this is what it was, but we're going to go completely different from that. We're going to make it its own new thing. And I disagree with that because, the source material is the source material for a reason. If you're going to make it its own different new thing, then tell a different story. But you're tell you're but you're telling this story because of what this source material had, this uniqueness that this particular project had. And so mm-hmm. you don't have to do everything by the book. And that's what I, I love seeing um, a perfect blend of of paying homage to the source material but but acknowledging the things that don't work or the things that could work better or the things that we're just going to do differently because hey we're doing how the grinch stole christmas and we don't have jim carrey we have patrick page you know but who's mad that you got patrick page i love having patrick yeah and that's not to say that jim carrey is better than patrick they are just like not not even not even apples and oranges i mean you're it's it's a a comparison does not exist um between these two masterful performers so in adaptations i just want to see I want to see respect done to the original source material, um, but also 
newness. So uh, Tina Landau, our director for SpongeBob, said, um, we don't, she said, we don't want to alienate anyone. We want to make Broadway fans SpongeBob fans and SpongeBob fans Broadway fans. So there were things in the musical that, um, if you were a, a SpongeBob SquarePants fan, not even a die-hard one, but if you had watched the show, you would pick up on and you would love. But okay. there were people who either hadn't seen the TV show at all or didn't like the TV show who came out of that musical loving it. And I think that's a wonderful example of something that isn't of our world that we can still make relevant and relatable so in like for um for how the grinch stole christmas um one of the things that our our designer did and said was at least for i was only in it the the first year that it was on broadway so i don't know if if things changed but in our set um and our costumes we had um red white and what they called pepto-bismol pink and then everything at red, white, Pepto-Bismol, pink. And then the other things were like black outlines. And other than that, the mm-hmm. only other color was the Grinch, who was green. And the reason for that was because um, was mm-hmm. because that's the way that it was in the original illustration of the book. So that is um, the original Dr. Seuss book. And so that is something that I love, something that it's attention to detail, a nod, an homage um, in in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory when the the little boy during, uh, Charlie, during his song where he's singing about Willy Wonka and kind of telling the story of Willy Wonka, um... He says the line, um, uh, no one knows how his chalk gets made or, or something, but he says, nobody ever goes in and nobody ever goes out. And he delivers it and is directed to deliver it in a way that is a nod to that original one-off character that's never seen again in the film. But it's, I, I love, because all the adaptations that I've been part of, I've also been very, very familiar with the source material. Just, I, they are very near and dear to my, my homeschooled heart. Um, and so I love the, the Easter eggs, the little hidden things of, this is a nod to the original. So I want to see, you know, acknowledge that it did come from somewhere. I love new works and I think there need to be more of them. But if you're doing an adaptation, you know, you know, call it what it is. Like, you know, let's let's call it call a spade a spade. Let it is it is an adaptation. Let it be an adaptation, which means taking what was great about the original and then adding on to it to further it and to make it even more accepted and more just just more. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and we're seeing, I mean, really, when you're looking at Broadway right now, it's mostly, well, 
Nothing's on Broadway right now. Unfortunately, we are recording this, uh, you know, about 90 days into pandemic quarantine. Um, but, you know, we ha- we are dominated by so many adaptations, some very good, some very bad. Um, but, you know, I think it's, you, you know, you've got to have that whimsical touch to the 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 love and the magic of the connection and why we're wanting to tell that story just in a different form and i you know i think it's i think you brought up some amazingly beautiful points and thank you for being on the show today thank you for having me this was so much fun uh so why don't you tell the audience at home where they can find you online Oh, definitely. So I am on Twitter on at Bryn Williams um, or on Instagram at Bryn Will. That's B-R-Y-N-N-W-I-L-L. So I have a question. Have you ever wanted to get into comics, but you just didn't know where to start? Well, welcome to Comics Quest. I'm J.D. Martin, and every week I sit down with a guest to talk a comic that I think anybody can pick up and start their comics reading journey. We take a look at psychedelic sci-fi, fantastic action, heart-wrenching love stories, and of course, superheroes. So check us out at certainpov.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you, as always, for tuning in. I know the show is a little bit different, but it feels just like the same, like a familiar taste of chocolate. Uh, Okay, I'm done. Uh, But since we recorded this so long ago, I just wanted to fill you in on something amazing that Bren has coming up. Bryn is performing her own show at Feinstein's 54 Below in New York City. So anybody is in that tri-state area, you need to make sure you get tickets now and go see it. It is called Bryn Williams' Confessions of a Bubbly Broadway Baby. The show art is so cute. It is Friday, September 10th. 2021. So again, that's Friday, September 10th of this year at 9 p.m. Uh, is when the doors are open. The show is at 9.45. You all will not want to miss out on that. You can get your tickets right now at 54below.com. And yeah, so go to 54below.com right now. Get your tickets for Bryn's show. As always, you can find us on Patreon under Dole Whip and Dreams, where only $2 a month shows that you love what we're doing. And this is an example of some other things that we have coming. We have our new trivia show coming up soon. I promise it's coming. (laughs) As well as all the amazing shows that you can find right here at the Certain POV Network. Hang out with us on Discord. It is a good time. I just shitpost and give a lot of memes. It's a good time. So come find us there. And join us next time as I take a deep dive with certain POV's main man, Case Aiken, into My Little Pony. That's right, Case and I are taking a deep dive, going to find the rainbow of light into the original Gen 1 of My Little Pony. You are not going to want to miss this show. It is such a good time. Now join us next time for another deep dive into the files of Saturday Morning Confidential. CPOV. CertainPOV.com.